follows a boy named Billy, a Philadelphia native, who's an orphan, and he's kind of a troublemaker. We meet him in the movie. He's actually um, tricking uh, Philadelphia police officers into going into a convenience store, which he locks them in so he can get into their car and get some information from their police scanner. And he ends up getting apprehended by the cops and put into foster care, where he meets a boy named Freddie, who ends up becoming like his adopted brother. And as in the case of most superhero movies, evil gets unleashed on Philadelphia, and Billy is chosen by a wizard to get and receive, be united to this, to this wizard's powers, so that whenever he says his name, he too becomes this hero. He becomes Shazam. And what's, what's really funny is him and Freddy, who's obsessed with superheroes, start, start to try to figure out what are the things that he could do, what are his powers. And they start to do all these great things. But as time goes on, Billy forgets who he was. He forgets where he came from. He forgets who he was before he was united to Shazam and given all of these tremendous gifts and powers. And he becomes unlikable. And the process of the movie is Billy recognizing who he was and who he is now so that he can use the gifts he's been given to save the world, to save Philadelphia. Well, this morning, we've just been spending four weeks meditating on these amazing blessings that we have in Christ. Pause this, remember, this extended sentence of all of the things God has given us in Jesus. And... I, strangely, maybe you would think he stops now and he pauses and he brings us to the way things were prior to salvation. He wants us to look back on where we were prior to God saving us. And so we start this morning with this meditation of sin, and then he shows us what God has done in the midst of our sin. And so the question for us today is, maybe you've taken grace for granted, Maybe you've forgotten who you were before you were saved by God. And we need to be reminded of the grace that we've been shown. And if you're an unbeliever here today, maybe you don't recognize how dire the situation is. And this morning, we're going to be confronted with this truth that we were dead, but by grace, you've been raised with Christ. And so join me now as we read these amazing verses from Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word, and all God's people say, amen. amen. So the first thing Paul wants us to see is 
prior to grace, we were dead in our sin. And there's this phrase in verse 3 that says, working in the sons of disobedience, sons of disobedience. And Paul confronts us right away by saying, we are not independent people that get to determine for ourselves who we are, what is right, what is wrong. We are fundamentally under someone else. And let me tell you, never before in the history of human civilization have we lived in a time where we are empowered to determine what's right and wrong, to determine who we are and what we, what we say about ourselves. We have science saying it. We have the money to do whatever we want, to define who we are. We have a culture that affirms it. And that's why this verse is so confrontational, because it says disobedience, which immediately tells us we are accountable. There is one above us that we are accountable to. And there's one whose commands we've chosen to rebel against. You know, every sin against God has some sort of human analogy that we can connect to. And for this disobedience, this rebellion towards God, the way that works out in our relationships with one another is that we are fundamentally anti-authority. We don't like when someone, our parents, tell us, do this, do that, knowing that they have our good in mind. We don't want to do it. We rebel. I experienced in a very visceral way how anti-authority I am a couple of weeks ago at Sky Taekwondo in Dresher. This is a a Taekwondo studio. Marwin wants to do Taekwondo so she could do a free class for 30 minutes. So we went, Courtney and I went, and we watched her, and we watched as the master, the master, which I already didn't even like that language, told her that she needed to say, yes, sir, after everything that he told her to do. Now, the reason we want Marwin to do this class is because she has balance issues. She's been in physical therapy her whole life. And we thought that this would be a good thing. And so that he had her do these things with boys that have been doing this for years. Jump through these hoops. Crawl on all fours, but don't touch the outside of the hoops. And she did it with Merwin energy. And she failed. And every time she failed, he yelled, get up, go to the back of the line, say yes, sir. And she did it. And I felt my blood boiling. How dare this stranger show this authority over my daughter. Doesn't he know she has issues? And it got worse because even when he showed love, I still didn't like him. He could see that she was struggling, and he held her hand like a dad, and he helped her leap in and do it the right way. And I still didn't like him because he made her say, yes, sir, and he showed authority. Where do you see anti-authority in your life? Where do you see things that people, your boss, um, your, your spouse, asking you to do something, telling you this is for your own good, and you rebel, you don't want to do it because you don't like the idea of somebody being above you? Where are you doing this with God? Where do you know that God is calling you, is, is commanding you as your loving father to follow him somewhere you don't want to go? And you are rebelling against him. You know, it's not always this way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, could have obeyed. But what the fruit promised was too appealing to pass up. It was worth the risk. It's worth the risk if I get to be my own authority, if I get to be my own God. It's worth the risk. And they passed their guilt on to us. 
And their desire to be their own gods became our desire to be our own gods. Determined to rule ourselves, to give ourselves our own commands. St. Augustine famously wrote that Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. And as they fulfill that commission and the number of people expand upon the earth, so do the number of people who sin. They pass their sin on to us. Their childbearing multiplied sin. And that's what Paul means when he says that we're by nature children of wrath. Sin is now a part of our nature. It is part of who we are. And as you've heard, I'm sure, many times, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are fundamentally. So I'm going to try to make a convincing case for us being naturally in our state sinners. Imagine you wake up this week, and it's a beautiful, crisp fall day. And you're looking out, and the sun is shining, and it's beaming on your face. And you've gotten up early, so you get to make a cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate, and you're enjoying the smell and the taste of that coffee. And you're looking at your life, and you're saying, it's a good day. And you have a couple of extra minutes to spare. So what do you do? You open up your phone, and you start sliding through Instagram. And you say, oh, Michelle Peel has some sort of purple flower. That's, that's cute. I like that. And you flip again, and you say, oh, Vivian, she's in Hong Kong. She's watching the protesters from her window. That's amazing. What an amazing photo. Oh, my buddy Zach's at Comic-Con, and somebody gave him a box of chocolates from Brazil. That's cool. And you're, like, amused, looking through, and then you stumble upon this picture. And you're like, oh, wow, Stephanie and Anthony, they're in, they're in Disney World. That's awesome. But then you start to look at the picture, and you think, isn't Anthony a doctor? Weren't they just in Disney World? How can they afford to go to Disney World? How can he get all that time off from work? Why did they bring Josh? Josh is not even, he's not even in their family. I hate that they go to Disney World. I want to go to Disney World. Why can't I go to Disney World? And you see what happens? This morning that you woke up being happy and joyful and thankful for all these different things is erased. And you're singularly focused on this other family and your bitterness and your anger towards them. And now their good fortune is a source of your, you're, you're not even able to celebrate with them. And all of the good things in your life just disappeared. Suddenly that coffee's not so good. Suddenly that sun beaming on your face is not so beautiful. And you're angry. That's what it means to be by nature, children of wrath. You didn't wake up wanting to be envious. You didn't wake up choosing to feel that way. No, it happened because we have a nature that's sinful, and then we cooperate with it. And that's what he says that's really desert, uh, disturbing, right? He says it's even worse than the fact that we do it by nature. He says that we live in accordance with our passions, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Not only are we by nature that way, sinners, but we cooperate with sin. We cooperate. We willingly and pursue it. We love it. Sin is not something outside of us. And so as Christians, we could never say, the devil made me do it. That is not biblical. We do what the devil gives us the opportunity to do. We want to do those things. Every sin that we commit at our deepest heart, we want it. We want it more. We go where we want. This word is crucial, following. We're following our desires. 
We're living in accord with what we desire. I don't know if you guys remember a show called Breaking Bad, but it followed this chemistry professor in New Mexico who's diagnosed in the pilot episode with cancer. And he's, it's, it's a dire situation. He's going to die. And he has a baby on the way. And he stumbles across a student of his who's selling drugs. And he realizes, I could probably make that drug better as a chemistry teacher. And so I'm going to start selling. He starts making a lot of money. And he morphs from Walter White into his alter ego, Heisenberg. And the thing that a lot of people would talk about at the water cooler on Mondays was how could this mild-mannered guy, Walter White, become a drug kingpin? It's amazing. He's doing something for his family. And all of a sudden, he's, he's a murderer. He's, he's evil. But you see, that was not Vince Gilligan, the creator of the show's intention. His intention was not to show a guy go from good to bad. His intention was to show a guy that was already bad whose circumstances reveal who he really was from the beginning. And in the finale of the show, it's haunting because he finally meets up with his wife. And you know what he says to her about everything he's done? He says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. I felt like I was alive. You see what that is? That's somebody following the course of their desires and their passions. That's somebody following everything set before them that they want for themselves. And that's what sin is like. It's self-focused. It's, it's selfish. Think about every, of the, every one of the seven deadly sins, right? I want what they want. I want more food. I want more money so I can get more things. I want my physical desires met. I'll objectify somebody else in the process. Me, 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 me. Selfishness. And Paul reminds us that this posture, the fact that we're by nature children of wrath and that we follow our desires always leads to death. Always. Not sometimes. Always. You were dead in your trespasses. Sin builds and morphs and grows until it's out of control. We can't pull it back. It's gotten out of our, 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 our ability to, to rein it in. I've heard from Fulham's kids that he is very obsessive about his lawn. <laughs> Don't worry, I asked him if I could talk about this, guys. And, and this is not actually a picture, but this is what I imagined to be. I googled beautiful lawn. This is what came up, right? So spotless, he's, he's fastidious. He makes sure he pulls every weed. And it's a gorgeous lawn, right? Now, my lawn looks like this. Not so bad from a distance, but when you get close, it is full of weeds. You pull one, four show up. By the end of this summer, my entire lawn was weeds. That's what sin is like. First, it's this one thing that you do, and then you can't stop doing it. And it grows, and it grows, and it takes control. And you can't handle it anymore until the whole grass is dead. And all you got is weeds. You've seen this with addiction, right? I remember being with a buddy for his bachelor party. Not a gambler. Goes on the craps table and has a run. He was up $5,000. And I saw the crazy look in your eye that you read about with people who have gambling problems. He was, he was winning. So I walked away. I got a drink and came back. Probably 20 minutes later, he was down $800. And he was like... I got to get the money back. I got to get back to breaking even. Good, good, and then out of control. We had to pull him away from the table. That's what addiction does. That's what sin does. It just keeps on building until we can't control it. 
And you know, our idolatries are the same way. Things that are seemingly insignificant. You care about your looks. You find value and purpose in your appearance. That's, that makes you matter, right? Well, that leads to death too, right? It's your confidence. You spend money on creams and clothing and exercise. And then when you start to age and the exercise doesn't do what it used to do or the face work starts to show, right? You die repeatedly. You can't even look at yourself in the mirror. And it kills those around you too. There's this gut-wrenching time op-ed about a mom talking about how the impact of her daughter watching the Kardashians getting all this plastic surgery in their 20s and 30s has made her feel like she's not pretty. We kill others with our idols too. And religion is not immune. Adam and Eve wanted to be their own gods, but if we use religion to make our own god, it's no better than thinking that we're God himself, right? We make God in our image. God is a Democrat. God is a Republican. God is a feminist. God is a communist. God is a white supremacist. We deny our sins trying to control God, right? We can earn our salvation. We could be good enough. We don't need God. And that leads to death, too. The chilling chapter in Matthew 23 where Jesus calls out the Pharisees, right? You've neglected justice and mercy. You do everything for other people to see you. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dead. No God. Same outcome. We die. No coming back. We're never satisfied. We never arrive. And then we die. I got to hear Jamie Smith speak this week, and he, he describes this, and this is what's haunting about this description. It's so innocuous. It's so, it's so commonplace. And yes, this, this is what sin leads us to. He goes, the road of life offers an unending ribbon of sights whose flashing billboards promise exactly what you're looking for, happiness, satisfaction, joy. The road has a strange way of showing what looks like a destination in the distance, but when you get there, it points to a destination that's a little bit further beyond it. So just when you think friendship, wealth, or influence was your ultimate destination, you hang out there, and then after time, the place starts to dim. Isn't that powerful? We look at all these things. They're right there. We, we're on the road to them. We get there, and then it's like they're just a little bit further from our reach. And then we get them, and they're so good, and we're happy. But it's only for a time. And then the joy that we felt in those things dims until our life dims to death. And we've never gotten the one thing we needed. We've never been with the one that we needed. And that could be where it ends. That could be the end of the story for us. But there are these two amazing words in verse 8. That in verse 4, that change everything. Two words that I hope you will rejoice for the rest of the week thinking about, but God. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And it's kind of like those movies that we watch where we think the bad guys are going to win. You watch the two towers, the Lord of the Rings, and the, the tower, the walls of Minas Tirith are crumbling. The orcs are coming in. Legolas looks worried, and he never looks worried. The darkness has set, and you're, you're anxious, and then the sun rises, and Gandalf comes with the Calvary. But God, or for those of you who like Frozen, when Anna is frozen at the end, and 
She seems like she's going to stay that way. That scene is so long. You're like, oh my gosh, she's going to die? But God, she thaws. She's okay. That's what this verse is showing us. We're saved by God. We're alive. We were dead following our heart's desires, following the course of the world, sons and daughters of disobedience. But God, God didn't give us justice. He didn't let us die in our sin. He didn't let us follow the spirit of the air. He's rich in mercy. He looked upon us and he showed us mercy. There's this amazing passage in the prophet Hosea's book, Israel's sinning, and Hosea is calling them to justice, and they rebel, and God is heartbroken. And he says this. God says this. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm. I won't execute my burning anger. I won't again destroy Ephraim, for I am God. I am God and not a man. The Holy One, I will not come in wrath. You see what God is saying separates him from us? His mercy, his compassion. I will not execute my anger because I'm not a man. We struggle with mercy, right? We want justice immediately. Somebody hurts us, we want them to be hurt. We watch them get hurt and we celebrate it. We don't want our enemies to be forgiven. We don't love them, but God is rich in mercy. He sees us dying in our sin and he feels compassion for his people. And when we were dead, he brought us back to life. We deserve punishment, but Jesus got the punishment we deserve. We should obey, but we're anti-authority, so Jesus obeys for us. We do nothing to be saved. It's not because we're good. It's not because we went to the right school. It's not because we were born into the right family. It's not because of what we say or do. It's not because we follow the rules. By grace. You have been saved. Salvation comes because of God's grace. Totally unearned. Been reading. Marilyn has to keep a log of all the books she read. So Courtney and I are like, this is competitive. We got to read a bunch. How many books can we read to this girl in 30 days? And so I recently read to her The Giving Tree. And I'm sure some of you have remembered this story. It's this little boy, and he has a friendship with a tree, and he spends his whole life with the tree. And as time goes on, he just keeps on taking from the tree. He, he, he needs money, so he sells the tree's apples. He needs a house, so he steals the branches and builds a home. He wants to go traveling, so he cuts the trunk down and builds a boat. And at the end, he's this old man sitting on the stump of the tree. And the tree is happy. This guy does not deserve anything. He brings nothing to the table, and the tree loves him anyway. That's God's grace. God loves you. So much so that if you saw your actions from his perspective, you'd probably be disgusted, like I was reading this book. I actually texted a woman. I'm like, what is this book about? Is this a good book? Like, what is it? And I had to wrestle with the, the radical nature of grace. You know, it doesn't just impact the present. Look at the next verse. It says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul, again, is using the past tense to speak about something that has not yet fully happened. Heavenly is a word that Paul uses a lot in his letters. And it's also in the, the letter to the Hebrews. And it's, it's always meant to capture this tension between what we're experiencing now and the fact that it's only a shadow. It's only a shadow of what's yet to come. 
And so in Hebrews, it talks about the sacrifices needing, we needed a heavenly sacrifice. The sacrifice of bulls and animals was not enough for sin. So we have a heavenly sacrifice in God's only son dying for our sake, heavenly. In Corinthians, Paul talks about our bodies. And so right now we are seated with him and we will be seated with him. And the, the blessings don't just end with being saved from our sins. We're going to be given imperishable bodies. It's an amazing meditation. Adam is sown from the dirt. He's a living spirit. But Jesus is a life-giving spirit. We're going to have imperishable bodies. We're going to bear the image of the man of heaven, raised in power, won't break down. C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce where he meditates on visiting heaven and hell. And when he gets to heaven, the people, he calls them solid. They're solid people. And when he, as a man, steps on the grass in heaven, it hurts his feet because it's imperishable grass. It's grass that hurts because his flesh can't handle the grass of heaven. We, we miss what's, what's coming. God wants us focused on the end game in the present moment. I'm going to be tall like Edward in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to be buff like Will. There's things coming that are far greater than we could imagine. Paul also says we don't get half the grace that's been given to us. We just don't get it. We think grace is we were saved from our sins. But Paul is saying no, like grace is the entire life of the Christian. And as we live, we're going to see more and more every day of God's grace and what it means. He says that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ. Grace is immeasurable. We limit it. We see it as this one moment, and we forget that it's constantly revealing new facets of God's love for us. Our lives as Christians are supposed to be marked by seeing God's grace in every moment of our lives, good and bad. We're never going to exhaust God's grace. And that's important, especially if some of us are coming this morning with suffering. We hate it. We, we hate unanswered prayers. We, we're bitter and confused about why God is not answering things the way we want him to. What's something you're struggling with right now? What are you angry about? God promises that you will later see these things as God's grace. It's outrageous. Romans 8, all things work. All things work for our good. That's either a promise or it's a lie, and it's a promise because it's God's word. All things work. A couple of weeks ago when I preached, I, I read a quote. We were talking about inheritance, and I talked about those of us who feel like we don't have an inheritance. We're, our families are in debt. We don't, we're not married. We don't have children. It's a, it's a hard thing to hear. Again, in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis meditates on what the immeasurable graces of God look like. And he describes a woman that was never married, a woman that never had any children. And he comes upon this woman in the clearing, and she is so radiant and so beautiful, he assumes it's got to be the, son of, the, the mother of God. It's got to be Mary. And there are these people shining like jewels around her. And she's surrounded by children. And this is what goes down, this dialogue with his guide. He says, who are all these young men and women on each side? And the guide says, those are her sons and daughters. And he says, she must have had a large family, sir. 
And he says, no, every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. And then he says, wasn't that a bit hard on her parents or their parents? And he says, no, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. That's what the immeasurable graces are going to look like in our lives. Every single thing. This woman's earthly life was probably hard, difficult. And yet, as she is in the new heavens and the new earth, every single thing that she did is a sign of God's grace. She has more children than she could ever imagine. It's such a beautiful picture. The immeasurable riches of God's grace. Our passage ends with this amazing promise. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We were all destined for death, every one of us. In that state, everything we do is temporary. No lasting value or purpose. Squandered. If you ever buy like really nice fruit from Giant and it, like, it's, it looks so amazing, and then you put it in your fridge, you forget. And then the next day or two days later, it's soft and brown. You've, you've wasted this really good package of grapes, so these really good strawberries are now moldy. How about squandering a life, right? Yet God would not let us do that. He handpicked us to do good works for him. We are his workmanship. Think about that. I get ideas. I have a, a letter that I want to write to a friend, and all the emotions I'm feeling towards them are bubbling up, and I want to be able to express that in a way that captures what I'm feeling. Or I want to take a picture and I want it to, to capture what, I, what I've pictured in my head. Or I want to draw. I want to draw an illustration. Or I want to write a story. And I, and I work at it. And I care about it. And when it's done, it's never what it was in my head. It always falls short. Because I'm finite. It's never what I want it to be. But God is infinite. Infinite power. Infinite mercy. Infinite wisdom. And you are his workmanship. You. He's crafting and molding and shaping you into the image of his son. And it will not fail because it's God doing it. It's not me or you trying to execute a job or do something creative. It's God. You're his workmanship. Created for good deeds. He chose each one of you to do something that only you can do because that's how he made you. Created for good works in Christ. What an amazing promise. What an amazing thing to live our lives out of. My prayer is that as we leave, we would remember today, but God in his mercy, so that we would live out of those graces we've been shown and do those good works he's made us to do.